say that I am? And our response to that question determines where we'll be for eternity. We then looked at our belief in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead with the full authority of God, but also a personal being. We talked a lot about the Holy Spirit in our Bible class this morning. And when we know that Spirit's dwelling in us and we listen to it, we'll be led in ways we never thought possible and we'll see blessings we never expected. We then talked about the new life that we have in Jesus. We believe in this new life, this life that transforms us, this life that changes our perspective, and this life that is a blessing as we walk with Christ daily. And last week we talked about our belief in the crucifixion. Jesus died a horrific death on the cross in my place, in your place. God sent him to this earth to die. He sent him to this earth and prepared him for what he was about to face. And he sacrificed him on that cross for our sins. And through his sacrifice, we have the blessing of eternal life that Gabe talked about. We believe in the crucifixion. And today, we believe in the resurrection. Amen? We believe in the resurrection. Once there was a singing group called the Resurrection, and they were scheduled to begin, or they were scheduled to perform at a church one night. But a big snowstorm came, and the roads weren't safe. So the preacher was seen outside of the church putting up a sign that says, The resurrection has been postponed. Wouldn't that be troubling had the resurrection been postponed? canceled. There's a story about a man who's standing on the street looking through a store window at a beautiful painting of the crucifixion. And as he's standing there, he notices this little ragged boy walks up and is standing there looking at the picture with him. And to test the little boy, the man says, son, do you know what this picture's about? Don't you know, sir, said the little boy. That man there on the cross is Jesus. Those are Roman soldiers surrounding him. And that, mo- that woman crying over there, that's his mother. Very good, said the man, and he turned to walk away. And he heard the pitter-patter of little steps behind him, and he turned around, the little boy was running up to catch up with him, and he said, Sir, I didn't tell you. He rose again. You see, it was important for that little boy to tell the rest of the story. Paul Harvey used to tell us the rest of the story. Are we excited about telling people the rest of the story when it comes to Jesus? Last week we talked about his crucifixion. We believe in the crucifixion. But thank God the story doesn't end there. Amen? Thank God that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus died on the cross. That is a fact. But you know what? He did not stay dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, Paul says the following writes the following. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. The triumphal rest of the story of Jesus is that he arose from the dead. His story didn't end with the cross. But we have the empty tomb. And since the moment Jesus defeated death, we no longer have to look at death the same. Amen? We no longer have to look at death the same. You know, most of us are very familiar with death, aren't we? We're familiar with grief.
that we love. Maybe we've lost parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or spouses. We've lost people. We're familiar with grief and sorrow. I've conducted a lot of funerals over the years. I know many of you have. Death brings the harsh reality of irreversibility, right? Those who die can't come back here. But the amazing promise, the awesome promise of Jesus is the promise of reversibility. You see, with Jesus, nothing, not even death, is final. Amen? Not even death is the end of the story. The resurrection is so important in our lives and so important in our faith that it is the foundation of everything we believe in. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, and 14, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. We know that's not true, though, because the resurrection is real. Philippians 3, 20 through 21, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Church, as believers in Jesus, we have a glorious hope. Not just a hope, but a glorious hope. A hope that can never be taken from us. A hope that can never be stolen. A hope that lasts forever. So how can we be sure of the resurrection? Have you asked yourself that question? How can we be so sure that this actually occurred? Because from a human perspective, this story is pretty unbelievable, isn't it? Pretty unbelievable. People who try to discount or deny the resurrection, they try to paint the disciples in one of two ways. They say these are gullible people who would believe anything, or they are the greatest conspiracy theorists there's ever been. But the Bible doesn't paint the disciples as either one of these categories. With regard to being gullible, the gospel showed Jesus' followers of being leery about the initial reports that he'd risen from the grave. They didn't just instantly believe it. Thomas even got labeled what? Doubting Thomas. In reality, all the disciples showed a lack of faith. None of them believed the report that the women brought back that the tomb was empty and that he had risen. <clears throat> and even after Jesus appeared in person, Matthew 28, 18 tells us some doubted. So these people were not gullible. Initially, it was hard for them to believe in the resurrection. And as for this conspiracy theory thing, that falls apart too when you look at it. Chuck Colson, who participated in the Watergate conspiracy, says the following, cover-ups only work if all participants maintain a unified front, right? Just like if you're going to lie, you better have a good long memory, right? Cover-ups only work if everybody involved maintains a unified front. But that didn't happen with the disciples, did it? The gospels show them hiding in locked rooms. Why were they hiding in locked rooms? Because they feared that what Jesus had just endured was going to happen to them, right? They were afraid most of them didn't attend his crucifixion or his burial. And they seemed incapable of faking or risking their own lives by stealing his body. And I'd imagine the confusion and the fear that they were dealing with and the sadness 
That thought didn't even occur to him. Now, also, who were the first witnesses to the resurrection? Who came back and reported what had happened? The women. Sorry, ladies, but no first century conspirator would have ever used women as witnesses. In fact, in Jewish courts, women were not able to be witnesses. They weren't even considered credible witnesses. So a deliberate cover-up would have involved John or Peter or some man being the first witnesses if they were making all this up. So the fact that women were actually the first witnesses shows that this was not a great conspiracy theory that somebody made up. And the authors of the Gospels would have had plenty of time to clean up all this when they actually put pen to paper. But they weren't making up something. They were writing down facts as inspired by God's Holy Spirit. A conspiracy theorist would have tidied up all of this before reporting it. Also, think about the way Jesus appeared after his death. Did he make a grand entrance in front of a bunch of people when he came back? No. He came back in almost unglamorous ways. He didn't make a dramatic or well-orchestrated entrance. Surely conspiracy theorists would have done a much neater job in bringing Jesus back into the picture. The Gospels don't present the resurrection of Jesus like a polished courtroom argument with all kinds of proof and evidence for each argument. In fact, the Gospels present the resurrection of Jesus as a shocking event that no one was expecting. Not even Jesus' close followers even though he tried to tell them many times, right? The first witnesses reacted just like we would react if a deceased family member rang our doorbell. How would you react? You would react fearfully and joyfully, right? That's what was going through their minds. The only conspiracy theory that was set in motion here was the one the authorities tried to make up. We read about it in Matthew 28, verses 12 through 15. They're afraid, right? They don't know what to do. Here they've crucified Jesus. Now he's resurrected. Oh my goodness, we're in trouble, right? So here's what they say, Matthew 28, 12 through 15. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. I'd like to know how much money it really was, right? A large sum of money telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This, this theory doesn't even make any sense. Just look at it for a moment. No body was ever produced. The best way to, to, to prove that Jesus didn't raise from the grave or, or rose from the grave would have been to produce his body, right? But no body could be produced. Why? Because Jesus wasn't dead, amen? But look at what the chief priests and elders are trying to scheme here to do. They say, hey, soldiers, tell the, tell the people this story. While we were asleep, the disciples came and stole him back. Now, what's wrong with that story? Well, many things. What was in front of the tomb? A big stone. Do you really believe the disciples could come up and roll this stone away without waking up the guards? No. But it's even further troubling, more troubling, because if they were truly asleep, how could the soldiers 
identify the people as the disciples of Jesus who came to steal him from the grave. It doesn't make any sense. It reminds me kind of a cartoon I saw many years ago. Two soldiers are standing by the empty tomb, and one looks very worried. The other soldier shrugs, the other, other soldier shrugs his shoulders and he says, Don't worry about it. Hundred years from now, who will remember? Well, a hundred years from now, people do remember because this is an eternal matter, church. When we read the Gospels of Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection, it's often hard for us sitting here in America in the year 2020 to forget just how hard it would be for the disciples to believe this had happened. The empty tomb in and of itself just proved the tomb was empty, that he wasn't there. But it didn't necessarily prove that he'd risen. Convincing those early doubters would require some personal, intimate encounters with Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus did over about the next six weeks. He came in very unglamorous ways. There were no angels in the sky singing that he was coming back. There were no kings bringing him gifts. But instead, Jesus appeared in the most ordinary, normal circumstances. He went to a private dinner. He went to two men walking along a road. He showed up at a woman weeping in a garden and some fishermen doing their jobs. For nearly six weeks, we see Jesus here, and then he's gone. He comes and goes. The next 12 pattern, 12 or so visits show a pattern. Jesus visited small groups followers in remote or private gatherings. As far as we know, not a single unbeliever saw Jesus after he was resurrected, except for Saul of Tarsus later on. Think about that. Why did he not make more appearances? You ever wondered about that? Why didn't he announce that he was still alive in very unmistakable ways? Why did he limit his visits to his disciples? Why not make an appearance at the temple and preach, right? Why not show up and knock on Pilate's door or go back before the Sanhedrin and say, boy, you guys messed up. That's what I would have done. How about you? You know why he didn't do that? Well, he tells us in John chapter 20, verse 29, he's telling Thomas, doubting Thomas, he says, blessed, or because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Amen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, to his disciples, to his followers, Jesus made his identity so obvious that none of them could ever again deny him. And you know what? None of them ever did, did they? For them, Jesus was now irrefutable. The church would now stand or fall based on how persuasive these eyewitnesses could be. How persuasive these eyewitnesses could be for those who have not yet seen. That's us, church. How did they do? Pretty good, amen? Pretty good. You see, Jesus had just six weeks to establish his identity for all time with those few witnesses, and it worked. This fearful band of followers now turned into fearless evangelists. The 11 men who had deserted him went to their graves proclaiming Jesus had risen from the dead. And for them, once they were convinced Jesus had risen, 
everything changed in their lives. Think about that. These guys have gone through some pretty big changes up until this point, right? Hard changes, difficult changes, changes that would take faith and trust in Jesus, the one they followed. But then he was killed, he was dead, and everything turned upside down. But now they're convinced he'd risen from the grave, and everything in them changed, although nothing around them changed at all. Let's not miss sight of that fact. Rome still occupied Palestine. The religious authorities were still doing their thing and had them all in their crosshairs. Death and sin and evil were still part of the world. Their circumstances didn't change, but everything inside of them did. Let that be a lesson for us today if everything around you seems wrong. Because this world's not perfect, is it? There's a lot of troubles. There's a lot of strife. There's a lot of situations that we hope for that are going to change. Maybe we've been praying for change. But you know what? Even though Christ may not change your circumstance or your situation, he will change you. And that's what he did for these 11 men. And because of his resurrection, they were filled with joy and courage and peace, even though everything around them was otherwise. And we find ourselves in that situation too. What differences does the resurrection make? We believe in the resurrection. What differences does the resurrection make? Well, first of all, it changes how we think about Jesus. The men and women who saw him after he'd risen were changed forever. What differences does the resurrection make? Well, first of all, it changes how we think about him. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And while on this earth, he claimed to be the Son of God, equal with God. And his resurrection confirms this fact. Secondly, a difference the resurrection makes, it proves he's powerful and keeps his promises. You ever known anybody in your life that doesn't keep their promises? That hurts, doesn't it? And sometimes we don't keep our promises either. The resurrection proves Jesus keeps his promises. It proves he has the power to do what he's promised. He said in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Hurricane Church, do you believe this? Amen. Amen. When we believe in Jesus, we'll never die. He has the power to keep that promise. And you know how we know he has that power? Because he defeated death once and for all. Because of his resurrection, we know he can keep good on his promises. Another difference the resurrection of Jesus makes is it changes how we live. It makes a difference in how we live today. You see, the resurrection means that our sins are forgiven. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 and 17, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. We know the resurrection is true. And because of the resurrection, we don't have to live in our sins. Doesn't that give you hope? Doesn't that put a smile on your face? I don't want to live in my sins. How about you? We read, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, the Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
The resurrection of Jesus changes the way we live because that blood that was shed cleanses us. We're forgiven. We don't have to live in guilt, shame, and condemnation because we're forgiven. Another big difference the resurrection makes is it gives our lives purpose. Have you ever lived life feeling that you don't really have a purpose? You're just kind of there. Nobody really cares. Maybe you don't have anything to do. Maybe you're bored. If you're bored, come to my house. The resurrection of Christ gives each of us a purpose. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul has been discussing how important the resurrection is, and he writes the following. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Have you ever done labor and it's all been worthless? That happens to me when I try to fix something around my house. And then I usually have to yell upstairs to Austin to come and really fix it, right? It happens. And when I do that, my work has all been in vain, right? If I work real hard on a case and get it prepared for trial and then it settles, guess what? Brian, what happens? Waste of time, right? That's how work is. Labor sometimes is in vain. Sometimes the things we do, the things we worry about, the things we spend our time on, sometimes the things even other people pay us to do has no purpose. Guess what? Kingdom works different. Sometimes you labor in the kingdom and maybe you plan something and nobody shows up or you want to do something and the response isn't what you think or you do something and nothing comes of it. You know what the word of God promises you? That was not a waste of time. If you're doing it faithfully in the name of Jesus Christ, it is never in vain. The resurrection gives our lives purpose. There's a purpose for our work in the kingdom and for us in this kingdom. And another big difference the resurrection makes is we have a heavenly home. Amen, Ed. Amen. We have a I don't like to hear Christians say we will have eternal life. Because you know what? When you're a Christian, you do have eternal life. Now, can you walk away from it? Sure. I believe Scripture teaches us we can backslide, we can leave if we turn away. But if we remain faithful, it's not that we will have an eternal life. We have eternal life. When we look at it that way, sometimes that will change our perspective a little bit. Gibson read for us John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I've shared this with you before, but my grandma Dorothy suffered the last nine years of her life with Alzheimer's. Toward the end, she didn't know who she was or who any of us were. But as long as she could speak, she could recite John 14, 1 through 3 in the King James Version. And even though she didn't know who we were when we would go to visit, before we left her room, she'd tell us that verse. After everything about her memory had left, she never forgot the promise of Jesus 
that he was working on her room in heaven. Church, that is the power and the livelihood and the peace that we have in knowing the resurrection is real. When everything else in this life leaves us, we still have the promise that our Savior is preparing a home for us. And he's going to take us to be where he is. That's powerful. That is a huge difference the resurrection of Jesus makes. He's that glorious contractor working on our room. And that contractor shows up when he's supposed to, right? Just think of it that way. He's working on us, that mansion over the hilltop. And because of the resurrection, we will be in eternity with him forever. We won't spend eternity with him because you can't spend eternity. We will be there. Preacher David Owens says, because we know we're forgiven, we have a purpose and a home in heaven. We can live confidently, gratefully, 